Hi, everyone, and welcome to the American Ambulance EMS podcast. I'm Dr. Danielle Campaign, American Ambulance's medical director. I'm here with our fantastic co-hosts, Dr. Patil Armenian and Dr. Sajin Bakta. Hello. Hi, everyone. And we have a special guest, paramedic Lano Tukai. Hi. Today, we're going to be talking about pulmonary embolism. Who serves a million people in the valley? We do. The brave men and women of the double A are the best at what they do in EMS today. The finest place in the world to be is right here as a part of American's family. Help is on the way, got a unit and route. No matter the problem, when in doubt, we send them out. Sure as the sunrise, sure as I bust this rhyme, 10 minutes or less. Every call, every time, this is my career path, this is what I do. The double A's, red, white, and blue. Get your call on. Here comes American. Get your lights on. Here comes American. Get your gurney on. Here comes American. Get your gloves on. Here comes American. Get your save on. Lano, thank you so much for being here today and sharing your case. But first, can you tell us about yourself? Hi, thank you for having me. Um, so I uh, started EMS in 91 uh, as an explorer, and then uh, I was hired at American Ambulance uh, in early uh, spring of 1994. I left in 2005, came back a little over five years ago, and been living it ever since. I got into EMS uh, as a teenager after seeing my grandfather going to a, a cardiac arrest, and uh, middle of the night, uh, American Ambulance paramedics were the ones that showed up. And they uh, worked him, resuscitated him, and he lived for, uh, up until 1997. And that was, and his heart attack was in 1989. So uh, he had a really good long life, after, even after the arrest. It's a fantastic story about how what you do every day matters to someone who's watching. Yeah, no, it, it is. And now um, uh, my son, uh, Francisco, is an EMT here now. He just got hired. And my daughter, Alexa, is an EMT, and she's working on her hiring process right now, along with my wife, who's a uh, TICU nurse. Fantastic. And she's also a uh, ER nurse at St. Agnes. That's awesome. Well, please tell us about your case. Well, uh, this was really uh, one of those subtle cases that, you know, we were able to detect a PE early into the encounter with this patient. Now, typically... You get a patient that, you know, chest wall pain, uh, pleuritic, uh, it can become very easy to just dismiss this as um, anxiety or um, in our case here in the Central Valley, you know, with our such a large homeless population, you know, the Central Valley, we have a lot of ag, so they get a whole lot of these chemicals and they make their, um, their poor man speed. So in this case with this gentleman, we picked him up and we picked him up a couple times before in the past and he's always been very candid with us, very... Um, very nice, respectable. He's not one of those guys you pick up all the time, and he's just very belligerent. He's very nice. Well, in this case, he was having some pleuritic chest pain, hyperventilating, didn't want to move. Uh, the pain's been going on for a couple of days, and it just kind of was intermittent. But then every time it would return, it was worse than before. So finally, he you know, activates 911. And just kind of looking at this gentleman, we knew something just wasn't quite right. Um, even the, uh, the guys off the engine, they were like, you know, this, this isn't typical, you know, for this guy. After a while, it can be easy to become very complacent, dismissive with some of the patients, you know, we pick up, especially if they're, you know, uh, frequent encounters. But through that, um, you know, talking with them and having, you know, that, that dialogue of conversation, we were able to kind of, you know, keen that this isn't your typical chest wall, 
pain, you know, where, you know, we're moving around. This is going to be you know, like a pleuretic type of thing. So we talked him into, into getting in the back of the ambulance where we can take a better look at him. Now, mind you, this was already, you know, late evening, you know, early night. So kind of that twilight um, period. It's getting cold. So we get him in the back of the ambulance and right away you can see he had this cape cyanosis. So right from the um, nasolabial fold in the face, you know, across the mouth and down towards the chin, he had this this grayish blue color. Uh, my partner at the time, Tony Tapia, you know, calls out, hey, he's got bilateral JVD. And this was obvious JVD, not that subtle JVD that you would see. This was like we saw it and it's like, all right, listening to his lungs and they're clear for the most part except on that bottom right base, just a little bit of wet. And we actually had to really concentrate to hear this. He's hyperventilating, tachycardic, threw him on the SAT monitor, and he's 89, 90 with clear lung sounds, you know, for the most part. And, you know, a little bit of, you know, rails in the on one side, threw him on the monitor right away, and um, Tony was able to cascade our EKG to where we had lead one on the top frame and lead three on the bottom frame, followed by our um, pulse ox pleth. And right away we saw the S, we saw a really deep S wave in lead one. We saw a flipped, you know, and, you know, spiked T wave in lead three. So we had S1, Q3, T3. And in that type of criteria, we know that that's going to be very indicative of a PE. Um, I think it's only like maybe what 10 or 12% of the population with PEs will show that. But if you have it, it's pretty much a guarantee they've got it. Uh, talking more with this gentleman, he says he has a history of PE, but his last one was six months ago. And he takes no thinners. He's on no meds. Um, we knew him to be a meth user, and we asked him, when's the last time you used any meth? And he told us two days ago. And the reason being, it hurt. It hurt to breathe. The pain was more than the desire for the meth. Blood pressure showed that he was hypotensive. He was uh, he was hypotensive, just kind of barely, right about 98, 96, 100. We still had good, you know, refill. We had, you know, good pulses, but you could see that he was in that right heart strain, you know, with the wet lung sounds, the JVD. So all this is really, you know, showing, hey, look, this is going to probably be another PE. So he wanted to go to a, a community hospital, and we told him and explained to him that no, you need to go to something that's got all the resources that are immediately available. And um, he agreed. And so we made, we made our way down there and this was a, you know, immediate stat transport. Uh, Tony's like, Hey, diesel. And I was like, diesel, let's go. <laughs> so we uh, went, you know, to, uh, to the hospital a couple months later, uh, we just happened to run into each other. And he told us that, yeah, he had another PE. He had two of them. One of them uh, started off in, in the leg near his pelvis and it part of it broke off, which would explain why every time he was breathing, he was, you know, intermittent and every time it would the pain would return, it was worsening. So because it was just kind of traveling. So it's good to see that he was, you know, he was up walking around and he looked better and he said he was, you know, staying up on his meds, but he still had his habit. So and that, you know so he was going to try to see what he can do about, you know, following up with that. But he made it and it sounds like he had a pretty extensive pulmonary embolus. So that's great. It's a great case illustrating all the key factors of having a PE. And I love that you got to follow up later yeah, um, was, on the street. And when you're yeah. working and you bumped into him. to, to yeah, show. It, it was really uh, just, you know, happenstance that we just happened to run into the guy and it's like, oh, hey. That's great. I love it. Awesome case. Thank you. Oh, thank you.
Yeah, thank you, Lana, for coming in and sharing this great case with us. All right, thank, thank you for having me. All right, so Sajan, kick us off with the introduction epidemiology of pulmonary embolism. So PE is a great case to discuss, especially in the midst and aftermath of the COVID era. In the recent past, we've all received many calls for respiratory distress, and it can be easy to anchor on the common cases, COVID, COPD, and CHF. Today, we're going to focus our discussion on another respiratory disease that can also cause respiratory distress and shock, and that's pulmonary embolism. Now, by definition, it describes the obstruction of a pulmonary artery by a foreign material. So this can be either thrombus, tumor, air, or fat. The most common type, and the one we will discuss most, is a blood clot in the pulmonary arteries. These are further classified by the presence or absence of hemodynamic instability. So a massive or high-risk PE is defined by hemodynamic instability, or systolic blood pressure less than 90. Although it's usually caused by large blood clots, instability can also be caused by a small PE or multiple small PEs in a patient with underlying cardiopulmonary disease. A submassive or intermediate risk PE is defined by right ventricular strain without persistent hypotension. And then a low-risk PE is a mildly symptomatic or asymptomatic PE. Now, in the general population, it is estimated there is an incidence of about one case per 1,000. Incidence does rise with increasing age, especially in women, to over five cases per 1,000 after age 75. Now, mortality, depending on the study you look at, has a wide range as well. One study showed overall mortality after diagnosis of PE to be about 4% at 30 days and 13% at one year. And so it becomes really important to rapidly identify the presence of PE and especially hemodynamic stability because death, when it occurs, often occurs within the first two hours of symptom onset. So shock or hemodynamic instability occurs in about 8% of patients and is associated with 30 to 50% risk of death. In one study published in the early 2000s, they found two-thirds of fatalities occurred within the first hour, and this hour is often pre-hospital. So the pre-hospital provider plays an enormous role in identifying, assessing, and managing these patients in this golden hour. So let's jump into the pathophysiology of pulmonary embolism. So the first step of developing a PE is forming a thrombus, and this happens under the circumstances of Virchow's triad. Virchow's triad is the triad of venous stasis, endothelial injury, and a hypercoagulable state. So venous stasis occurs with prolonged immobility. Endothelial injury occurs with recent surgery, trauma, cigarette smoking. And hypercoagulable state occurs in um, cancer, hormone therapy, and inherited gene mutations like factor V Leiden. Now, most emboli are thought to arise from lower extremity proximal veins. And um, remember that veins don't have the same muscular walls that arteries do, and they rely on external muscles, gravity, position changes to assist blood flow back to the heart. So this makes venous stasis or kind of venous blood flow slowing down very common in the lower extremities. And half of patients with a proximal DVT or deep venous thrombosis in the iliac, femoral, or popliteal veins will have a pulmonary embolus at presentation. 
and a third of distal or superficial calf vein DVTs may extend to the proximal veins and thus have greater potential to embolize to the lungs. So this is when you have a blood clot in the lower extremities that then kind of breaks off and travels up to the lungs, therefore causing a pulmonary embolus in the lungs. So once a thrombus has entered the pulmonary arteries, it can cause several abnormalities. So the big one is impairment of gas exchange. So typically when someone's in respiratory distress, we think of problems with the alveoli, like in CHF or aspirations, alveolar edema and inflammation prevent good gas exchange. But in this case, it's actually the vascular bed that has a disruption. So no matter how much oxygen is getting into that alveolus, there isn't blood there to actually oxygenate. And this is called a shunt physiology. This can be apparent by the fact that placing a patient on 100% FiO2 oxygen does not actually improve their oxygen saturation to a level as high as you would normally expect. So think of a large PE when you have persistent hypoxia despite clear breath sounds and giving significant supplemental oxygen. Something else that can happen is when clots lodge in the blood vessels and cause the pulmonary tissue to die. This is called infarction and occurs in 10% of patients. And these patients may have significant pleuritic chest pain and hemoptysis or coughing up blood. Now, shock can occur when clots are blocking the blood vessels in the lungs, and the right side of the heart then has to work much harder to push past that clot. Additionally, when lung tissue is experiencing hypoxia, the blood vessels constrict, and this significantly increases pulmonary vascular resistance. The pulmonary vascular resistance then leads to right ventricular dilation and strain, And this leads to the interventricular septum to bow into the left side, causing a decrease in left ventricular size and preload, thus causing decreased cardiac output. So it's this big chain of events that finally leads to decreasing cardiac output, and this is when the blood pressure starts to drop. And as we talked about earlier, the blood pressure dropping is just like an omen of badness. That means that they can code and die. Now that we've talked about the pathophysiology, let's kind of talk about the clinical presentation a little bit. Unfortunately, diagnosing a PE is very difficult. The clinical presentation is very diverse and compared with other respiratory diseases is really nonspecific. Symptoms can range from none at all to sudden death. There was a meta-analysis of 19 studies, over 25,000 patients, and it found that the clinical suspicion alone had a sensitivity of 85% for diagnosing of a PE. So it's really important to keep this diagnosis in your mind when you see these patients with very nonspecific symptoms. The most common symptoms were shortness of breath with 74% of the patients, pleuritic chest pain with 66%, cough with 37%, calf pain and swelling with 44%, hemoptysis or coughing up blood for 13%, and syncope in less than 10%. So as an aside, much has been made regarding unexplained syncope and associated with PEs. This is someone who's just walking all of a sudden passes out is associated with a pulmonary embolism. There was a large study out of Italy a few years ago that published the prevalence of 17% for PE in the unexplained syncope patient. Many took this to mean that of all syncope patients without a very obvious etiology, almost one in five had a PE. This is much higher than previously reported. It turns out, though, that the number of 17% was only for admitted patients, all of whom underwent very rigorous testing for PE and included very small PEs of unclear clinical significance. 
So when including syncope patients who were discharged from the ED, this number dropped to only 4%. It's unclear what the true prevalence of PE is in syncope patients. It likely lies somewhere in between those numbers. So this is where you're going to want to look for what are the actual most common presenting signs on exam, because syncope alone isn't going to do it. And actually, you're going to see tachypnea, calf or thigh swelling, erythema and tenderness, tachycardia, and fever. So even a little bit of fever can be present without obvious pneumonia um, and can be associated with PE. And then you're going to look for evidence of right heart strain or shock on exam. So elevated JVD, just like Lano mentioned in his case, the patient had significant JVD, cyanosis, and EKG changes that could include atrial fibrillation, sinus tachycardia, a new right bundle branch block, inferior Q waves, or that infamous S1Q3T3 pattern. Um, And then, of course, watch out for your blood pressure, hypotension, um, systolic blood pressure less than 90 would be very concerning. And I'll just add in right here, too, that in this uh, COVID and post-COVID era, the history of COVID is going to be really important, too, because it has been shown to dramatically increase the risk for blood clotting um, and developing coagulation disorders. Um, And so I would definitely ask that for everyone, too, because that is going to lead to more PEs, significant amount of PEs, actually. And so there are historical things that we use to try and risk stratify patients into their likelihood of developing blood clots. Some of the tools we have are things known as a Wells score. And it's not something that you need to memorize. Many of us don't have this memorized and use calculators, but some of these findings help to point us in the right direction and make sure that we're thinking about DVT or PE. Of course, if you have clinical signs of a DVT, that's unilateral, leg pain, calf pain, swelling, redness, tenderness, tachycardia, heart rate greater than 100, surgery in the last four weeks, or immobilization greater than three days, a history of previous DVT or PE, hemoptysis or coughing up blood, and active malignancy. These weigh into or are reflections of components of Virchow's triad, So anything that contributes to a hypercoagulable state, whether that's COVID or cancer or excessive estrogen in your system, whether that be contraceptives or pregnancy, these all can contribute to developing blood clots. They're not all weighted equally, but you should use these data points to guide your level of concern. And the last and worst presentation of PE is sudden cardiac arrest. Now remember, up to two-thirds of patients die in the first hour after symptoms start. In an article published in Resuscitation in 2018, they found an interesting way to analyze the effects of PE on cardiac arrest based on a data set in pigs. They found significantly lower end tidal CO2 levels during cardiac arrest when it was caused by PE compared to other causes such as primary cardiac arrhythmia or hypoxia or hyperkalemia. So if you work in a system that regularly uses entitled CO2 in your cardiac arrest resuscitations, which is ideally everyone, using all the information in your toolbox, including entitled CO2, if during CPR or rhythm checks, you don't see the entitled CO2 rise appropriately, consider impaired gas exchange and consider PE. 
And this can be important when you arrive to the hospital, as the ED physician may consider an alternative treatment than just standard ACLS. Let's jump to talking about some of these treatments. What is the option if we know we've got a PE? Patil. So as with all patients, we're going to start with our ABCs. But severe cases with right heart strain and failure can be very challenging from this aspect. You're going to want to provide supplemental oxygen. Just be cautious with too much positive pressure, such as BiPAP, CPAP, or intubation, as positive pressure can worsen right ventricular failure. You're going to want to start IV fluid resuscitation with, again, some caution because too much fluids can worsen right ventricular failure. At the end of the day, we're going to want to do some definitive therapies in the hospital setting, and this is going to be anticoagulation, thrombolysis, uh, which is to actually break up the clot um, with medications, or embolectomy, which is to actually take the clot out. Um, These treatments are not very common in the pre-hospital setting, um, but you as the pre-hospital provider play a huge role in the diagnostic momentum and supporting these patients through crucial early management. Talking about protocols, there's really no specific PE protocol in our system. You know, you may be on chest pain if they presented with chest pain complaints. You could be on shortness of breath. You know, the patient can just say they feel anxious because they can't have air hunger. So I think like Patil said, it's really important to not blow these patients off and you kind of control their diagnostic momentum. So if you come in and say, hey, this patient just have anxiety, it might take us a long time to figure out they have a PE. But if you come in and say, hey, they're anxious, I think it's because they're not getting enough oxygen, they're working hard to breathe. And sometimes it's very complicated, like we talked about. They always talk about PE being the great mimicker, right? It can mimic a lot of other things. And so we've got to find that. And like, I just always love also the just the little extra tidbits in a case that help push things forward. So, for example, when Lano said, you know, I've seen this guy before, he uses meth, but he last day used two days ago because he felt so bad that he couldn't breathe, like he couldn't even use meth. And so it's like you might want to write somebody off as like, oh, well, you use meth, so everything that's wrong with you is because of that. That's absolutely not the case. Like we still have to treat this seriously, and then realize, hey, there's something else going on. And so that's actually one of the points that I really loved about that case and some of those tidbits that can be really useful in the hospital setting. I also liked how Lano brought up that he really couldn't tell his cyanosis or distress until he got him to the back of the unit. So, you know, we're spoiled in the emergency department. The lights are on. We can see everything. People are undressed most of the time. But in the pre-hospital setting, there could be totally covered. It's winter outside right now, right? People are bundled up. You might not see the JVD. You might see that he's cyanotic until you get him inside the back of the unit. So I think it's really important that you don't, you know, blow off this chronic drug user homeless person that is nothing when really it's like, hey, something very serious is going on. And a lot of times, because these clinical signs are so nonspecific, you can head down a CHF pathway or a COPD pathway, but getting a good history is a really big part of this diagnosis is, have they had a PE or DVT before? Do they have active cancer? Are they using hormones? Those really tip us off and lead us in the right direction and are really important in these cases. So like Danielle mentioned, we don't really have a protocol for this. It's going to be under, you know, respiratory distress. Um, But in our non-traumatic shock respiratory distress protocol, it actually does mention that in signs of shock with dry lungs and neck vein distension, consider pulmonary embolus, even though they may not have neck vein distension. And you're going to really consider this with females on birth control pills, history of blood clots in the past or thrombophlebitis, 
um, if they're in the postpartum period or if it's a bedridden or immobilized patient. Um, so in our protocol, those are some of the times when you're really going to consider PE. And again, you're just going to treat them as you would any other respiratory distress patient. And let's jump to our summary take-home points for pulmonary embolism. Sajin. Making this diagnosis can be difficult, but if you have clear breath sounds and hypoxia that persists despite giving them a lot of oxygen, make sure you're thinking about PE. Patil. Always get the history as much as you can in any chest pain or respiratory distress patient and pay attention to hormone use and if they just had a baby, kind of all the things that we discussed that would um, predispose somebody to getting a blood clot. And my take home point is keep this on your differential always. Remember that study that we talked about of over 25,000 patients? If you actually think about this and just keep it on your clinical suspicion, that has a sensitivity of 85% alone. So our clinical skills, our ability to talk to the patient, do a physical exam really matters in this diagnosis. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thanks. If you guys like the American Ambulance EMS podcast and you feel like this has been useful for you, please give us a five-star review on the iTunes store so that we can move up in the ratings so that uh, other uh, pre-hospital professionals can listen to us as well. Um, and we're also taking any solicitations for ideas or, or topics that you want covered, and you can email us anytime at podcast at americanambulance.com. Once again, that's podcast at americanambulance.com. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on the American Ambulance EMS podcast produced by American Ambulance in Fresno, California. The views of the guests and the hosts of this show are their own and don't necessarily reflect the views of American Ambulance or UCSF Fresno. The theme song for the show is written and performed by Roshan Roach. The beats were created by Young Pear and Brett Schoenwald. And I'm John Mark Bergen, American Ambulance's media producer, saying thanks for joining us. Have a great shift and stay safe out there.